Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Well, that's more like it. How about that? Recording late on Wednesday night after the Celtics beat down the Philadelphia 76ers 121-87. A 34-point win. A dominant performance. And now 1-1 heading back to Philadelphia. So the Celtics do take home court advantage back in the series. More on that in a second. We'll get into the Sox as well because they are now red hot. Julian McWilliams of the Globe will join us as the Sox have now won five consecutive games. And they already clinched a series over the Blue Jays by taking the first three games of this one. So huge for the Red Sox as well. So the Red Sox right now, this is a fun team. And I hope they continue to be fun because whenever the Celtics season ends, hopefully it's after they win the championship. I want the Red Sox to be interesting. And right now, they're a very interesting storyline. So we'll get into that with Julian McWilliams of the Globe in just a little bit. But back to the Celtics. So the 76ers, from my perspective, made a massive mistake. They got caught up in the Joel Embiid MVP thing. Embiid telling his teammates after he gets the hardware, I'm back. That, from my perspective, was a tactical error on the 76ers' behalf for a couple of reasons. First of all, did he look right to you? Not to me. I know he had some big blocks, like the one on Jalen, especially at the rim. He had one on Tatum as well. But he was 4 of 9 from the field. And I know he got to the free throw line a little bit. But it did not feel like he was getting to his spots. He loves getting to the sort of that elbow area and going to work there, shooting his mid-ranger over guys. And we didn't really see him do much of that. And we also saw him at one point when he was at the free throw line grabbing at that massive knee brace. Okay, so first of all, from a health perspective, we heard this is a four to six week injury. Why bring him back when you're up one nothing? 
if you're down one nothing and the Celtics just beat the shit out of you hypothetically in game one of the series, okay, without Embiid, all right, it gives your team a major boost, right? But most of the analysis I heard prior to the game was, hey, if he's good to go, he should play. I totally disagree with that, right? Well, first of all, he didn't look like himself, and now you're going back home, and it's 1-1. The Celtics now have home court advantage again, and they just saw that your guy didn't look right. They saw the MVP of the NBA. He doesn't look right right now. So I don't know if this is a doc decision. I don't know if this is a Daryl Morey decision. I don't know if this is a medical team decision. I don't know if it's just, hey, Joel Embiid calls his shots or a combination of all those different things, but it was a brutal decision. And look, I thought the Celtics were going to win tonight no matter what. I mean, history tells us that. Basically, you go back, every home team that has lost in game one so far this postseason has bounced back in one game two. So you expected this to happen from the Celtics. And we've seen the Celtics. They do have a propensity to have these letdown games like we saw in game one, but they also do have big responses. And we saw that in this game tonight. But once I saw Embiid was coming back, I knew the Celtics were going to win. First of all, the Celtics, they were going to feel challenged. And for some reason, this team, as we mentioned, it needs to feel challenged. And if you're shorthanded, you're probably going to have a good chance to win against the Celtics, right? I mean, we talked about it on Monday's pod when Murray was out for the Hawks, going through the whole regular season, all these teams that had issues in terms of their health, they beat the Celtics when their guys weren't available, whether it be DeJounte Murray for the Hawks, whether it be Jamal Murray for the Nuggets, Shea for the Oklahoma City Thunder, right? So we've seen this with the Celtics, but the Celtics, they are going to respond when Embiid is playing, and they certainly did. I mean, I think about Game 6 against Milwaukee last year. The Celtics do have a habit of having these big-time victories. Bad loss in Game 5, the Bobby Portis rebound. They win Game 6, Tatum has 46 in Milwaukee. Miami, Game 6, Jimmy Butler comes into the garden. He lights you up. The Celtics respond. They win that Game 7, although it got a little too close at the end there, right? But you get my point. And just from a mindset standpoint, the Celtics have so much more pressure on them if they're playing Game 2 without Joel Embiid, right? You can't go down to the Philadelphia 76ers 2-0 when they don't have Joel Embiid. That's way more pressure. So Embiid playing actually did the Celtics some favors here. And I know it's crazy to say this, but the 76ers team was really, really difficult to defend with all the spacing and all the playmaking on the floor when Harden and Maxey were out there without the big guy in the middle, right? Where they had a bigger role. So tactically... In game two, they were easier to defend with this diminished version of Joel Embiid on the court. It was easier for the Celtics to defend this team. And obviously, they brought way more energy than they did in game one of the defensive end of the floor. But also, from Philly's perspective, you show the Celtics your hand. Embiid isn't right. You showed everybody that Embiid isn't right right now, and it was so unnecessary. So the Celtics, they feel right again after a brutal loss in game one. Now, as we know, the Celtics could lay another egg. We've seen this happen time and time again, but that was a dumb move to me. Embiid, especially with how the team played in game one, coming off a victory, and how he looked. Like, there's no way you could have thought that was the right move organizationally to play that guy. What the Heat did was right. And Jimmy Butler does not have as near an injury as Embiid does. And I'm not saying Jimmy Butler doesn't have a massive injury. He turned his ankle, and we'll see how he looks in... Miami's next game against New York, but that was the right move. You took game one, let Jimmy Butler get some rest and let him be ready and healthier for the next game rather than try to push through it in game two. The 76ers, like that Miami is a smart organization. Spolstra, Riley, those guys are smart. What Philadelphia did 
was dumb, and it has me feeling more confident in the Celtics going forward. I still thought after the game one loss, the Celtics going to win the series, but I feel even more confident that a team can make this type of decision organizationally. That was just dumb. And by the way, neither one of those guys, Harden or Maxie, played with the same energy. And I felt that Harden, after he got stoned a few times, he just punted on the game because it was like, oh, the MVP is back. He's going to do his thing. Harden punted on the game. I didn't feel like he gave the same effort. He certainly didn't have the same burst and the same energy that he had in game one. So, man, one thing I'll say is it's just so unfortunate that you didn't bring the necessary effort in game one if you're the Celtics because this should be 2 nothing, especially after what we saw from Embiid tonight. Because if you're down one nothing, I can understand why the 76ers would bring back Embiid, right? And that Embiid, like, they weren't going to win game two with that version of Embiid. So if you had just taking care of business in game one, you're up 2 nothing, and you're in a really, really good spot. You're still in a good spot. It's 1-1. You have home court and all that. But it just feels like the Celtics made this series more difficult on themselves by that laying of an egg in game one. And you did the same thing where you had bad losses against Milwaukee and Miami last year. But the good thing is the 76ers made a boneheaded decision in this game to play Joel Embiid. So that works out for the Celtics favor. All right. So Jason Tatum was dealing with foul trouble in this one. Seven points in 19 minutes. I'm not concerned about that. Hopefully this is a lesson that you cannot get into foul trouble if you're Tatum. This used to actually happen with Steph Curry early on in his playoff career where he would pick up dumb fouls. The third foul at the end of the second quarter, just driving out of control. You know that P.J. Tucker is waiting and he's going to try to take a charge. You just got to avoid that. And then the fourth one, you know that Joel Embiid, and we saw it in this game tonight, and James Harden are two of the biggest floppers in the league. I mean, how about the flop that Embiid had with Grant Williams where he dove to the ground? Just embarrassing. But nonetheless, you can't put yourself in position to pick up that foul trying to get through a screen. And it was a foul. Let me be clear. It's just there was a lot of embellishment. Like you thought that Harden had a serious head injury the way that he went down and stayed on the floor like through the timeout. But you get my point. You can't do that if you're Jason Tatum. So hopefully lesson learned because it didn't hurt you in this game tonight if you're the Celtics. But that cannot happen again going forward. So I just hope that Tatum realizes, hey, the dumb fouls, the stupid fouls, like those are avoidable fouls. Like this isn't, hey, going up for a shot block or something along those lines. It's a charge where you can see where P.J. Tucker is and you're fighting through a screen and you know who the screener is in beat and you know who the guy trying to get through the screen is and James Harden. You know what they're going to do. They're going to flop. So you just got to be smarter if you're Tatum when it comes to that. But what I will say is Tatum did not play well. You know who did? Jalen Brown. You needed a bounce back from Jalen after 10 shots in game one. He was being passive. It was the most aggravating thing about that loss besides the no-show on defense and maybe the Malcolm Brogdon pass at the end of the game. But Jalen not showing up was just so perplexing. Not I shouldn't say not showing up, but not participating after the first quarter of the game. So first of all, he got the hard-in assignment and that got him locked in. It really did. I have no idea why Jalen wasn't aggressive in that game one. But this is a different guy. And I actually think that having him lock in and guard Harden was a nice move by Missoula because it obviously worked out in terms of the results. But I think Jalen felt challenged that, hey, I got to do this in this game. And he was like picking him up full court and stuff. I love that from Jalen. And he got up in Harden's face. And when you go back to game one, when Smart guarded Harden, Harden was six of six from the floor and he had 18 points, right? So at this point, James Harden can't go by you, right? He's not going to go by you with his speed, his athleticism, his burst. But what he can do is he can muscle through you 
and get to the free throw line and finish through contact and all that different type of stuff. Maybe not even finish through contact, but get to the free throw line. He feels better when he's going up against smaller defenders like Marcus Smart. But Jalen is bigger than him. And obviously we know Jalen is completely jacked too. So James Harden cannot bully Jalen Brown. So it was really aggravating. You could tell that it was almost like James Harden didn't want to participate in the game because Jalen Brown's size and athleticism sort of overwhelmed him. So I think they really stumbled on something with this matchup because in that first game, Harden got whatever he wanted on smart and he was getting downhill, right? He had 18 drives in that game. He was eight of 12, which is 66.7%. And he had 18 points off his drives. And if you look at it on the season, Shea Gilgis-Alexander led the NBA with 17.1 points per game off of drives. Harden had 18 in that game one, and he's not even a great driver of the basketball anymore because he doesn't have that same level of, of, of athleticism. And if you look at it, Harden in the Brooklyn series, he had 19 total points on his drives. He had 18 in game one. He shot 23.1% on drives, six of 26. So this is not a guy that should be able to get downhill and get to the Lane, and if you go back to what Brooklyn did, they put bigger guys on him, whether it be Mikhail Bridges, whether it be Dorian Finney-Smith, and the Celtics went to Jalen Brown on him, and he shut it off. He was incredible. He shut off Harden's drive game. Harden had one shot at the rim at this game, and he was one of five on short mid-rangers, floaters, runners, that type of stuff. And in game one, he had 10 points in the paint. In this one, he had two, and that's really a credit to Jalen Brown. And it was on both ends, too, for Jalen, right? He goes for 25 points a game high. Plus 18, he took 17 shots, just to point out, he was much more aggressive tonight, and he hit three of his six threes. He continues to shoot well from deep. And just going through some of the stuff with him tonight, right off the bat, he hits a three off a down screen, which I thought was a nice move by Missoula. Get Jalen going, because you need to get him going after what happened last game. So the first play of the game, it's drawn up for Jalen Brown. Love that. Next play down the court, he drives by Harris, makes it 5-5. Then he drove past Harden to make it 12-8, gets to the line for a pair of free throws, 14-10. And then some mismatch hunting from the Celtics. Niang was on the court, so Jalen goes after Niang, gets to the free throw line, makes it 16 to 12. Then he sees the Paul Reed is on the court. He gets Reed switched on him, makes it 18 to 14. Then he hits a three off Al's screen to make it 45-36. Again, later on in the game, drove by Harden for an easy bucket. Wing three on a play from Smart, where I thought it was a nice play by Smart. He just dribbled at him. Jalen took the handoff, turned around, hit an easy three. He had one play where he just backed down Maxi shot right over him, and then he got by Tucker, got to the free throw line. So a little bit of everything from Jalen in this game, especially the biggest thing is he stayed aggressive and he shut down Harden. Those are two really important things. Jalen Brown really set the tone for this team in a couple of different ways. First of all, the defense, picking Harden up full court, taking Harden out of this game, and then offensively, the mismatch hunting, making Harden defend too, right? He was going at Harden at times, which quite frankly... They didn't do enough in game one. If Harden's going to be on the court, you got to go after Harden. And obviously he's going to be in the court for the majority of this game. He's their second best player. You have got to go after that guy. And if Maxi's on the court, target him. If Paul Reed's on the court, target him. If Niang's on the same on the court at the same time as Tatum or Jalen, they should do that. Like sometimes I get it. The Celtics don't like to play that way. But in the playoffs, every once in a while, you got to say, hey, that guy is the poor defender. Let's go after him. We saw that tonight from especially Jalen Brown. The other big thing in this game was Brogdon. 24 minutes, he's a plus 11, 23 points, 7 of 15 from, or I should say 6 of 10 from deep, 7 of 15 from the field overall. And he just brings an energy to the game. It's no fucking around. I'm driving or I'm getting to my three-point game. 
he's on the court to score, right? And the thing about Brogdon, it's think about playing him in pickup. If you were playing pickup basketball, you would not want to play against Malcolm Brogdon, right? You'd be trying to decide who is going to cover him because you don't want to cover him because he's ultra aggressive. He's physical. And let's just go with this. If you're playing one-on-one, right? If the Celtics, you're playing one-on-one, pick up one-on-one. After Jalen and Tatum, who would be the best one-on-one player? It's Brogdon, right? So this is why this guy's so important to the postseason is he's out there to get buckets and he's not messing around. He's getting downhill. He's getting to his spots. And I've been saying all season long, I felt like Brogdon's value was going to be clearer to see in the postseason because he doesn't always show up in the impact metrics. And I think some of that's overrated because he's always playing with the bench mob, right? He's playing the most minutes without Tatum and Jalen Brown as like anybody on the team. So his impact numbers are not going to look as great. And I do think this was a good thing, not playing him like in the starting lineup at all this season, because he did have to keep sort of that alpha mentality of being hey, when it's my turn, I got to go. And you see that sort of carrying itself over into the postseason. And you just look at it on the season, his isolation numbers, pretty good. He was in the 62nd percentile. And so that's one thing. He can ISO you up. And the other thing is this. He's one of the best shooters in the league. We've illustrated it throughout the season. He was third in the NBA in three-point shooting. Pull-up threes, 60 of 134, 44.8%. The only guy that was better on pull-up threes this year that took at least 130 was Steph Curry, the greatest shooter in the history of the sport. Malcolm Brogdon, the only guy better than him this year was Steph Curry. Catch and shoot threes, 44.2%, right? So we saw a little bit early in terms of the defense. He stripped Harden, forced the turnover. But what we saw is the pull-up game. Pull-up three, 23-18. And this is part of ISOing, right? Like he can get to the pull-up game because he's faking, not faking, but it's a hesitation like he's going to drive, step back, take, get to my pull-up game. Another pull-up three, 33-24. Then he got to the line in semi-transition after a rebound to make it 37-27, where once he gets the outlet, he's just going downhill. He had a nice little floater. That's another thing that he can get to. His floater game made it 42-32. Catch and shoot three from Jalen to make it 81-62. Then he drove. He found Grant for a wide-open three to make it 89-63. Then he had another pull-up three to make it 92-63, and then another catch and shoot three. So a little catch-up. Little catch and shoot game, little pull up game, little isolation game. He's just been massive for this team in the postseason. Like Derek White was great, and I'll get to him in a second here. For the first, what, five games of the Hawks series, ever since that point, Brogdon's been the better player. But White, another big thing is he's back, baby, okay? I was worried. Remember, last two games, 4 of 14, 28.6%, 11 points, minus 16, worst on the team. And this is after the first five games. He shot 59%. He was 50% from three, 97 points, so 19.4 per game, and he was a plus 17. So I got to tell you, tonight, 15 points, five of nine shooting, three of six from deep, plus 23. Only Tatum is better, and this is when we know Derek White is playing well. He shows up in the impact metrics, one of the best plus-minus guys in the entire NBA this season, fourth in the league. And we saw, like, early, I was worried again. So he missed a floater when they were down 5-3. Then he missed a transition three when it was a 5-5 game, and it wasn't really close. After that, he got to the line later on in the second quarter, made it 47-38. So you're thinking, okay, maybe this gets him going, and it did. Then he had a Derek White impact play, where he had an offensive rebound where he just tipped it to Al, and Al hit a three to make it 50-38. And that's sort of that trip to the line The offensive rebound, it kind of got him back on track, right? Those were Derek White plays where he's just kind of flying around and he's making shit happen. Then he hit a three-end transition. Then he hit a wing three. And then in semi-transition, got to the basket for a drive to make it 73-55. Then he hit a pull-up 
three at the top of the key to make it 76 to 60. That's when you knew he was sort of dialed in again. And then he had a nice layup off of Jalen Steele. But this is a big development is that Derek White is back to being the impact player that he was throughout the regular season and the first five games of the postseason because I was kind of worried. I thought we were going to lose him again because we've seen that throughout the postseason last year, I should say. You kind of lost him. He was a non-factor in the Brooklyn series. You lost him during the Miami series at times, and you definitely lost him at the end of the NBA Finals. So it looks like now he's back, which is a major thing going forward because you need his defense too. All right. So Smart, I was worried about this this game for Smart because in the first half, he took 12 shots, the most on the team, and he had 13 points, so not very efficient. And in the first half, he had no assists. Now, the good thing was he was a plus nine and only Tatum was better, but no assists, 12 shots. You're thinking, oh, shit. Marcus is going to take a bunch of shots in the second half, right? Because this is, we've seen this happen before. Remember in the elimination game in the bubble, he took the most shots on the team. But the good news is he only took two shots in the second half. So it was really a mixed bag with Smart. I understand why he was being aggressive, but some of the shots you just can't have with him, right? For example, he drove and he got blocked by Embiid when it was 5-5, where he had no chance at shooting it over Embiid. He tried to shoot a floater over a guy that's like seven foot three. Then he took a lefty floater when you have to read the situation because Brogdon is at the top of the key wide open and he's got Paul Reed on him. Okay, Brogdon, we know we just outlined this guy's great in isolation and smart decides to go into the lane to try to take a lefty floater when Malcolm Brogdon has the mismatch as a point guard. You got to realize, hey, this guy has a mismatch. I got to give him the ball. Then. He did hit a fadeaway to make it 28 to 22. And then he took a pull-up three in transition for no reason. Like, I don't understand why that's a good play. Just a pull-up three in transition. They go the other way. They make it 37 to 30. It's just, you're running. You guys have a five on four. Don't take a pull-up three, right? Then he took. He tried to take a lefty floater over Paul Reed. I, I don't know why he's trying to take these floaters over these big guys and he misses that pure garbage. I don't know why he was taking that. Then he bricked a contested three when it was 50 to 44. Then at the end of the half, he gets a lefty layup. You're like, all right, this makes sense. And then he blocks Niang when it's 52 to 45. It leads to a white three on the other side to make it 55, 45. So then he's making the smart plays. Then he backs down Melton, makes it 57 to 47. Backs in hard and he makes it 59, 49. And then he dribbles right to Jalen, as I mentioned that play with Jalen, to set him up for a three to make it 64-54. So he has these mind-numbing plays. So like, why would you take that shot? And then he has these impact plays that you see. So this is just going to be a roller coaster ride. It's an experience. The one thing I will give Smart credit for in this game, he stopped the volume shooting in the second half, which was major for the Celtics. All right, I do want to get to Al because I know he's a plus 19, and he's been great in the impact metrics throughout the postseason. He's now plus 63, which is fourth in the playoffs, but he's shooting just 11 of 37 from deep, 29.7%, and he was one of eight from deep tonight. And some of these misses tonight were bad. He was not even close to getting those to go in. And I do wonder sort of the mileage with Al. And during the regular season, the numbers were good when he only had one day off, but I do wonder if that's going to catch up to him here in terms of just one day in between these games. I do worry about the shooting from Al because what we saw in that series against Atlanta, they treated him like he was J.J. Redick or Clay Thompson where they were glued to him. If he doesn't start hitting some of those threes, they're going to sag off him. And I will say this about Philly, they're playing him a little differently. Like they're giving him those pick and pop opportunities. So Al's going to start knocking those down. But I do think he's been active. 
He had a nice block in this game on Harden when Harden went for a floater and it led to free throws the other way for Derek White. So he is showing up in terms of some hustle plays and things along those lines. But I am slightly worried about the shooting because Al this season, second best three-point shooter in the NBA behind only Luke Kennard. And when the guy's shooting south of 30%, it is certainly a concern, especially when you see some of the bad misses. All right, Grant, this is one of my favorite parts of the night. I like having Grant back out there. 12 points, knocked down four threes. He's a plus 22. But more importantly with Grant Williams, he just fucks with people. He got into it with Tucker after Tucker wanted a foul. So he's going back and forth with P.J. Tucker as the Celtics going the other way on a fast break. And then Grant said after the game, I was watching his press availability. He said that he told Embiid he's here to make it rough on him, which you love. I mean, this is what you want from Grant Williams, right? Grant's annoying and he can be very annoying, but you need guys like this, just like Philly needs Tucker on the other side. Those guys that piss you off, you need those sort of players in the postseason, right? I'm not comparing the players, but Draymond Green has been that guy for the team that's been the dynasty of the past decade or so in the Warriors. I'm not comparing what Grant does to Draymond, but I'm just saying like you need guys that get underneath your skin, right? The Bulls had it with Rodman. Like you need these type of guys that are just going to irritate you. Even a guy like to a lesser extent, Bruce Bowen, he would piss guys off, right? Like you need that type of player. Ron Artest, when he was playing with Kobe Bryant, you need guys that are going to piss you off. And I just feel like the Celtics going away from Grant, I, I never liked it. I've talked about it all season long. And I know maybe he's not the same defender he was last year, especially like switching on guards is kind of a problem for Grant at times, but you don't have many quick guards on this Philly team, right? Like with the exception of Maxi, but it's not like you're dealing with Trey Young anymore. So I think what we saw tonight is Grant's going to be back in the rotation. And I felt like they overreacted in game one, Joe Mazzulli and company, when essentially Grant gets on the court and Harden seeks him out on a switch. And he only played four minutes because they saw that and they're like, okay, we can't have Grant out there anymore. And I just disagree with that decision. So I'm happy that Grant's now back there. And I do feel that Grant is going to make this series more interesting. He's definitely going to get into it with Embiid again. He's probably going to get into it with Tucker, and he's going to get into it with James Harden. All three of those guys. I can get. He's already getting, got into it with two of them, Tucker and Embiid. The, first, the guys played in like one real game in the postseason. He got into it with both these guys, so I'd expect more of that, and I love that because Grant last season was mixing it up with everybody. It's good to have Grant Williams back. As annoying as he can be at times, it's great to have this guy back. All right, Missoula. The one thing I did like from Missoula, End of the second quarter. I do feel like he stumbled upon something, which I would have been trying a lot of, and I mentioned this the other day. So after the Tatum foul, he goes small ball, smart, white, Brogdon, Jalen, and Al. Spread Philly out. They are a slow team. They're not fast. This is your advantage. You have all these guards. You have all these guards slash wings, playmakers. Use them all at the same time. You had the one big out there, and it seemed to work, right? You guys were playing with pace. And then you look at game one, they had a lineup out on the court of Rob, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Derek White, and Malcolm Brogdon, right? They had that unit out there for six minutes. They had a 136.4 offensive rating and an 84.6 defensive rating. And look, this is the smallest of sample sizes, six minutes. But I'm thinking to myself, when that unit's out there, this makes a lot of sense. Derek White can make plays. Brogdon can make plays. Tatum can make plays. Brown can make plays, and Rob is a great roller. So it's tough to defend him when Rob's just running around setting picks for all these athletic guys getting downhill, getting whatever they want. And that five-man unit, I looked it up yesterday, they played just eight minutes together the entire season. This is a group that should work. So I hope what we see is more of these units where you have the four playmakers on the court at the same time. Heck, if I was me, 
if Embiid comes out of that game, I would go to five of them. I would go to the three guards, Smart, Derek White, Brogdon, Tatum, and Jalen. I'm not saying you have to stick with it for an extended period of time, but see what happens. Try these different things out. And tonight, it felt like he just stumbled upon that because of the Tatum foul trouble. But I would try more of these small ball units, especially when Embiid's off the court. But when Embiid is on the court, it's not like they're playing another big. Go with the one big and go with a bunch of playmakers around him. So I really feel like that lineup, the Rob Tatum, Jalen White, and Brogdon lineup, I would try that more out in this series. I really feel like it could help you later on in the postseason as well. Try that out. I mean, that is an incredibly difficult unit to defend. So I want to see more of that lineup. Anyway, oh, we do have to mention this. TNT. This is the NBA playoffs. Like, this is an embarrassment. Kevin Harlan is one of the great broadcasters of our era. This guy is incredible. And this broadcast tonight has nothing to do with Kevin Harlan. He was outstanding as he always is. But what is going on with TNT? First of all, don't come back from commercials late. They came back from a commercial late. Okay, another thing they did is they missed the Jalen Brown steal when the Celtics got a layup because they have the camera on Malcolm Brogdon at the end of the other end of the court. And then when they come back from commercial, we never even see the steal. So you can't miss plays, and I don't know what's going on. Maybe they could save some money on the drone. Like, they have this dumbass drone where you can't even see what's going on, and the issue is you come back from commercial late. So maybe stop spending all this fucking money on the drone, and you can come back from commercial on time. Like, it's just annoying, like, how they have handled this whole broadcast. And the other thing is this. How is Reggie Miller the best option? Does anybody think Reggie Miller is good at me? Come on, man. Like <laughs> He's terrible. He said in the second half, okay, the adjustment they've made in the second half, this is what he said. The adjustment they've made in the second half is they got Jalen on Harden. I'm like, dude, you're at the game. He was on him the whole game. How are you just realizing this right now? I mean, that to me is just unacceptable from a guy that's calling the game. How did you just notice that? That was the big thing in the whole first half. That they made the adjustment to say, hey, uh, you know what we're going to do here? We are going to have Jalen Brown muscle up James Harden because we think this is a good matchup to be physical with James Harden at work. Apparently, Reggie Miller didn't notice that. I don't know how you could watch the entire first half and not realize what the matchup was and not realizing that Jalen Brown was literally picking him up full court. So anyway, the TNT thing, it's a complete mess. I Look, I, I love Kevin Harlan, but I much rather watch these games on ABC or ESPN. I love Van Gundy as the analyst, and Breen's obviously awesome, too. And ESPN, they try some crazy angles, but it's much better in terms of the product, in terms of what you're actually viewing than what we saw on TNT. That was, quite frankly, an embarrassment. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention is the Celtics had really been struggling in the third quarters of games, and quite frankly, in the second half. In general, and that's something that certainly turned in tonight's game because I was worried about this. Because if you look at it throughout the postseason, in the third quarter, the Celtics had a 104.1 offensive rating entering this game two, which was 15th. And remember, there's only 16 teams in the playoffs, only Brooklyn was worse, and they got swept. They had a 119.3 defensive rating that was 10th, and they had a minus 15.2 net rating. So they were being outscored by 15.2 points per 100 possessions. That was 15th. Only the Clippers were worse. They lost in five games, and Paul George didn't play in any games, and Kawhi Leonard missed, what, the last three of that series. And if you look at it, entering tonight, the Celtics had been outscored by 25 points in the third quarter. Tonight, 35 to 16. So what's that, a plus 19 in terms of what the Celtics did in that third quarter. So I don't know if it's 
hey, the orange slices at halftime, like when you're a kid, you're playing soccer, you get orange slices at halftime. I don't know what it was, but whatever happened tonight at halftime was totally different than what we've seen throughout the postseason. So let's hope that's the start of something, that they won't be legitimately the second worst third quarter team in the postseason the rest of the way. That would be massive. All right. So by the way, I'm going to get to some Red Sox with Julian McWilliams of the Globe in just a bit here. Just a note on that, we did record earlier today, but most of the stuff, all the stuff is actually great. So you're going to enjoy this. But just a note on this game, they light up Manoa and eight hits on him. And look, Manoa in that defense got a little bit sloppy. He himself made an error, but Duran with another extra base hit to drive in a run, which is huge. Cassis, three hits in this game, which is massive. And Julian and I talked about that because Cassis has really been struggling. So great to see him sort of get these three hits and hopefully that gets him going. Yoshida, by the way, extends his hitting streak to 13 games. He had an absolute rocket off Manoa. Absolute rocket. By the way, Verdugo, another hit off Manoa. Verdugo had criticized Manoa recently about the fact that, and this is from my buddy Rob Broad, uh, my buddy Rob Bradford's podcast. He essentially said that he didn't like the way that Manoa handled himself last year when he was celebrating the strikeouts that he had over Franchi and Bobby Dahlbeck, which anybody can strike those guys out. I don't know why it's a big achievement, but he sort of walked back those comments. And I like the fact that the Red Sox don't like Manoa because, quite frankly, I don't like Manoa. He's too much in, on the mound. And even tonight, did you see what he did before the game? The game started late because he took too long to walk to the dugout from the bullpen. Like, dude, get over there in time. The game doesn't start on time because you're taking your time getting there. I think one thing that's hurting him, Manoa, this is, he's a bigger guy, obviously hefty, burly. The pitch clock is affecting him. The guy is not in great shape, so I do think that's actually hurting him. As crazy as that sounds, I think the pitch clock is hurting him. So anyway, the Red Sox pick up this win. And this is important because the Red Sox were 3-16 and 16 against the Blue Jays last year. Think about that, 3-16. and 16. They were outscored by 70 runs. They, of course, now, some of that is highlighted by the 28-5 to 5 loss, but you still were 3-16 and 16 against this team last year. They were out-hit 218-155, to 155, so plus 63 in favor of the Blue Jays. And now the Red Sox, after this win, they've now won three in a row. So they tied in terms of the amount of wins they had last year against the Blue Jays. They've already clinched a series win. They've taken the first three out of this four-game series. And Thursday night, great pitching matchup. You got Bayo against Gosman. But now the Sox, five straight wins. They're 18 and 14. And Pavetta, who continues to give up a lot of loud contact, 54.4% hard hit rate entering tonight, which was 121st out of 125 starters. Barrel rate's high too, 14.5% in terms of the amount of the batted balls that are barreled up. That's 122nd out of 125. Did give up the four barrels, so 23.5% in this game tonight. Michael Kopech's the only guy over 20%. So he did give up some good contact. He gave up the home run to, he gave up two home runs, one of them to Vlad that was just absolutely smoked. Middle, middle, bad changeup. And now he's given up a home run in all but one of his starts, he's given up six on the season. But then you look at it, and tonight, he gives you six innings. He only gives up the three earned runs. And if that's Pavetta, he's ideally a back end of the rotation guy. And he's important during the regular season because he can eat up innings. And he gives you six in this game, and he only gives up the three runs. Just like we mentioned with Kluber, if he gives you three runs in five innings, you take it. And you do the same thing with Pavetta. So despite the fact that this guy gives up a ton of loud contact, at least he gives you innings. And you certainly take that. Not to say like you want him to be a front end of the rotation guy. He's never going to be that. He's a back end of the rotation guy. But this is a huge win for the Red Sox. So I did want to get to the Sox because they've been really, really good lately. 
and this looks like it's going to be a really entertaining team the rest of the year. So we went through some stuff, the MVP, the biggest surprise. We got to all that next with Julian McWilliams of The Globe. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the Globe, it is Julian McWilliams because we got to talk about the Sox because they're playing really good baseball now. Now, we are recording on Wednesday afternoon prior to the game tonight against the Blue Jays, so Pavetta very easily could ruin this for everybody. He's allergic to giving up soft contact, but the Red Sox are playing really well right now. Julian, thanks for coming back on, man. How are you? Always. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I'm good. How's it going over there? I'm doing well, man, and I got to say, like, after... The way that the season started, you were kind of energetic. They won two of three. You had the Duvall with the walk-off and all that, and you felt pretty good about where the Red Sox are at. And then they had some bad series. The Pirates, although mm-hmm. we're finding out the Pirates are a pretty good baseball team, they got swept by the mm-hmm. Rays, and you're starting to think, oh, maybe this isn't going to be a great season. But, man, recently you take two of three from Milwaukee. You beat up on Cleveland. You win that series. And now they've already, and like I said, we're recording before game three of the series, but they've already split with the Blue Jays. you got to feel pretty good about where the Sox are at right now. 100%. And I think the, the fact that they're getting – um, stuff from younger guys too. I think that that really, really sort of resonates with me. I mean, you look at the game Connor Wong had last night. I mean, the wall ball double was the, I mean, that was 114.2 off the bat, right? Like, I think that was more so like the, the, um, the most impressive thing to me. Obviously, the homers were, were impressive too, but like, man, like I, he hits the ball with like so much authority and power sometimes. And, and I know Cora mentioned at the beginning of the season, he was like, look, like this guy has some like scary kind of like sneaky pop. And we saw it last night, right? I mean, and then you look at like Jaron Duran, the way he's been playing, he's been confident. Um, obviously, I think, um, you know, Cora talks about him opening up last year about his struggles mentally when he sort of with all the stuff that comes with Boston and how, you know, that sort of was was a was sort of a relief to, to, to Duran to be able to open up that way. So, I mean, just the Emmanuel Valdez, though he can't catch a cold in the field. I mean, the guy can hit. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's 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 you're really really getting production from from those guys, and I think, and I think the fact that you know they're producing is not only good for this year, but sort of certainly good for, um, you know, potentially years to come for the Red Sox. Well, and the Wong and Verdugo thing, it's like, remember the whole Mookie trade Verdugo that looked too, like yeah. horrible, and now it's like all of a sudden, hey, Verdugo looks like an All Star level player. And the Wong thing is fascinating because if you look at Wong entering this game Wednesday, his last 11 batted balls all were hard hit, to your point about the exit velocity mm-hmm. on that game on Tuesday. 81.8% hard hit rate. And you look at sort of how good he's been behind the plate because, again, coming back to the beginning of the season, that was an issue for this team. 
He has seven defensive run saves as a catcher, which is first in baseball. He's first in defensive war in all of Major League Baseball by baseball references number. His pop time is second in all of Major League Baseball. And you're starting to think he's a different type of catcher, right? Because you could maybe argue that he's the second fastest player on the team, maybe. I mean, the guy flies around the bases. Obviously, nobody's touching Duran, but he looks pretty fast out there. And this is something that I, I didn't expect, Julian. When you and I talked before the season... I was thinking to myself, this is a lot on Reese McGuire this year behind the plate. And in the game on Wednesday night, Alex Cora is trotting him out against a right-handed pitcher and Alec Manola. So obviously they feel really confident right now with where Wong's at. This is one of the biggest, I think, biggest storylines of the season so far is maybe they found a catcher for the foreseeable future. And look, it's early. He could stumble and all that, but it looks mm-hmm. pretty good right now. Absolutely. And I, and I think the defensive numbers are real. And, I, and, and, and it goes back to 2020 for me. And and. And Nate Evaldi was the first person to call this out, right? Like, because during the shutdown, um, he was Nate's, like, Nate stayed down in, in, in Florida. And I think Connor was down in Florida as well. And that became Nate's bullpen catcher. Um, sort of, he catched Nate's, like, all of Nate's bullpens, and they became really close. And he's just talking about, like, look, like, the guy has, has, an, has, has this, uh, this shrewdness behind the plate and this ability to be able to call the game, even though they weren't calling games, but the ability to be able to communicate with pitchers in a way that, he hadn't seen from a younger guy and that became Nate's guy even though he was in the minors even though we didn't really hear about this guy he hadn't played up against uh, above double a he never played in the Red Sox system at that point like the Red Sox minor league season was canceled so he wasn't like he was a virtually an unknown right the only prospect we really knew about were was Jeter Downs right like and and, and, yeah. and like the, the sort of Wong was kind of like the throw-in guy like like okay like we got like a guy who played second base but now he's a catcher like Okay, and Nate's saying, like, no, this guy's, like, going to be really good behind the plate. All right, like, we'll see what happens here. And then you go into this spring, and, again, me me included. Like, I'm writing, like, look, they have a catching issue, right? And I, and, 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 and to the Sox, not, not to their credit, but I think they were more so thinking along the lines of us because if you listen to what Haim was, was saying in the, in the offseason last year, going to the offseason, he was like, no, like, the first priority is to upgrade at catcher. Like he kept saying that the first priority is upgraded catcher. Obviously, they, they didn't do that. Maybe they had a different, um, you know, sent, different thought about it. But like, if they did, good for them because I mean, it seems to be working out. He seems to be the everyday guy there. I mean, um, pitchers love working at him even before this this run that he's had. Um, you know, Sale talked about how great he was behind the plate. Uh, Pavetta talked about how great he was behind the plate. Hal talked about how great he was behind the plate. And you're almost thinking like, okay, are they trying to say Reese isn't the guy because? All of them are saying how great Wong is and how he did a great job of calling the game. But nobody really ever really said that about Reese or went out their way to say that about Reese. So I, I just find that interesting and fascinating that you just get this guy that's very this 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 very, very quiet guy. Like he's sort of like just like is in the corner by himself and everybody's like, no, like he's the best communicator on the team. It's like what? Like he doesn't even hardly speak, at least not to us. Like yeah. it looks like he's scared of his own shadow. But. It's, but Cora says all the time, you go to the mound and it's like, it's like a fuck, like a, it's like a, it's like a fucking like crazy game, like where it's. I think they were playing the Yankees. It was a, it was a wild, wild game, and he said, and he asked, he asked, and Hirokazu Salamore of all people was on the mound, and he was like, and 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 uh, Cora went to the Wong and it was like, what do you see? And it was like the eighth inning. He was like, uh, his sinker's not sinking. <laughs> and it's just like kind of like just like <laughs> in a regular tone, while like. While like the Yankees are going on this crazy run at Yankee Stadium, and Hirokazu Samoro is on the mound, and he's like, "Yeah, he has to get his sinker down," and 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 that kind of struck horror. Was like, "Whoa!" Like this guy's a little bit different mentally. I mean, we talk about slow heartbeat in baseball. I think 
a lot, but I think he's the person that really, really has that and just sort of just goes out there and just 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 seems to vibe, man, and, and, and seems to just be able to be able to communicate with his pitchers effectively. Yeah, that's a great point. And maybe, too, going back to the Avaldi thing you mentioned, maybe that's what it's from, right? Where Avaldi, when he's throwing to him, he's probably asking him, hey, what looked good today? What didn't look good today? See? And he can yeah. point it out. So now he's got the confidence. It's like, hey, yeah, we can't throw the sinker, okay? None of this, Selmore. No more no more throwing no, the sinker no in this splits, particular situation. Please. But it's huge, man. It's been one of the biggest finds of the season or one of the biggest bright spots for this team, certainly. So I wanted to get your take on who's been the MVP of this team so far. So before I get your take, because I think we're going to have the same guy, I want to mention Yoshida because Verdugo to me is the MVP. He's been outstanding. I give him a ton of credit to professionalism to come in in much better shape than he did last year. He's hitting for average against lefties, not for power, but at least he's hitting for average. And the way that he's hitting against righties, as long as he's hitting for average against lefties, that's fine. But the Yoshida thing. So he comes into the season. He's coming off the WBC. And I remember talking to Cora about this before the season when we had him on the pod, and he was a little bit concerned about the start because he was going to have to adjust Mm -hmm. to Major League Baseball, and he was going to be traveling a ton, right, between the WBC Mm -hmm. and then coming back to spring training, originally coming over for spring training. So it's a lot of traveling. And if you look at the start through the 18th of April, 167, which was 182nd out of 191 qualifiers, the slugging percentage was 181st at 250. The ground ball rate was the highest in baseball and the launch <laughs> angle. <laughs> Remember that? Everything that was out. Yeah. The, <laughs> was like the launch angle, man. It was it was negative five point one degrees. Since mm-hmm. four twenty, where and I'm not saying it's any reason because four twenty, I'm just saying that's the date where this twelve game hitting streak started from, okay? Four thirty four. I four thirty five rather, first in baseball. The slugging percentage is seven eighty three. The OPS twelve sixty three, which is fourth in baseball. So now on the season after that start, he's hitting 298. He has a 391 on base percentage, 511 slug, 902 OPS. Hit another home run in the game on, what, Tuesday night. So yeah. if you just look at this guy, we thought, okay, he was definitely going to hit for average. The approach was going to be good. And at the beginning of the season, you were kind of getting concerned. But you're thinking, give this guy a little bit of time here for the adjustment period. But man, now Cora loves hitting him second in the lineup when he used to have Rafael Devers in that position. He's been incredible, and there was a lot of criticism thrown Heimblum and the Red Sox way for this contract, right? Where it's like, oh, nobody was offering him close to that. That's why the contract got so do- got done so quickly. Scott Boris is like, yeah, let's get this thing done. But man, this may be a bargain. Like this deal may be better than what people thought. Like they may have actually underpaid him. And I give them a lot of credit for. Look, you're the Boston Red Sox. If you think this guy's a stud, go out and pay him. Like well, use him. your financial mm-hmm. muscles, if you will. So I've been pleasantly surprised with Yoshida. So I just wanted to mention how great Yoshida's been. But who would you have right now for your MVP? Verdugo. I mean, I think, and, and, and granted, like we said, like it's early, but I mean, just you just see it like with the, you know, he's his approach, just like when you talk to him, he's like, look, I'm trying to hit ball fastballs the other way. I'm trying to hit like like sort of the, the, the breaking stuff and off speed stuff. Like, you know, I'm trying to hit the breaking stuff the, and I'm trying to pull the breaking stuff. Like, that's just, that's just like what he's sort of, he's sort of, he's sort of gone to. And he's like, look, like, you know, he said something interesting. He's like the, the simple, like the simpler I keep their approach, like the bigger the results happen. Like the, the, the more, the more of, I think of like a big approach of like trying to go yard, then like simple ground outs happen. And I think we saw it last year with like a lot of like, 
ground balls to second base. And like, you see that you still see that with him. Like if he rolled, like that's just, you know, he doesn't really strike out, but his strikeout is like rolling over a ball to second base. Right. So, um, I mean, man, like everything is up, like exit velocity is up. Like his, his, um, you know, his, 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 his arm is back. Um, you know, power is obviously up. He had 11 home runs last year. He has five right now. Um, batting average is up. So like just the approach, I think. And I think also in the off season of Alex Cora challenging him and saying like, Hey, like, you know, you got to get better. Like you're not like, you've kind of just sort of plateaued as this like, yeah, nice player, but like, dude, like you were in a freaking Mookie Betts trade. Can we at least get something from you? That's, you know, better than like a two, two win player a year. Like that's not going to necessarily cut it. And I think he really took that to heart. And I remember I was talking to him in spring training. And he was like, I'm a 5-2 player. And I'm like, get the heck out of here. Like, what the hell do you mean you're a 5-2 player? <laughs> no, you're not. Like, you're probably like maybe three, three and a half. But like this year, like he's proven himself to to to, to sort of be that. Or or not maybe 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 if not a 5-2 player, some somewhere close to it. And I think just his entire approach to the season has been like, look, like I am getting older. I am 26, 27 years old now. Like I have been in the league since I was what, 21, 22 years old. I was supposed to be this big guy, you know, that was supposed that that was this uh prospect, but the the Dodgers traded me away. You know, they kept other guys, but they traded me. You know what I mean? So like there's still that thought that that resonates within within the back of your head and I think he's sort of taken that to heart and clearly has been He's been elite defensively too. Like if you look there are there are plays in right field, I mean in right field that at Camden Yards that he was making, he was getting so much action over there. And like he was making every single play. I mean, he's getting the great jumps. He's getting he's getting the great reads on the ball. The arm the arm strength is there. I don't care about like assists or anything. Like guys aren't taking that. It's sort of like the Jackie Bradley approach where it's like, yeah, I don't have assists because guys aren't running on me. Like that's 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 where sort of what comes with it, right? Like it's like guys aren't challenging me to take the next bag. And so I think you're seeing sort of starting to see that with Verdugo in a sense, where guys are starting to have that pause in terms of taking the next bag because they know his arm is back to being to the the elite arm of what it was, say, in like 2018, 2019. He went through some shoulder stuff, he told me, in like 2020, 2021 and stuff like that. But, you know, I think it's I think I think you're seeing the, the, the complete player that the Red Sox envisioned. Yeah. And I think part of it, too, is they're better like swing decisions. Right. Because I think he had this curse of being such this and I forget who you compared him to before the season maybe it was D Gordon but he has like such great bat to ball skills yeah, that sometimes yeah. sometimes he tries to get his bat on everything right everything. so it's like okay well it's a 1-1 slider on the outside portion of the plate that you can't possibly do any damage with but he knows he can get to it so he makes right. weak contact and if you look at the numbers this year breaking balls he's hitting 300 compared to 207 last year the off-speed stuff 421 compared to 195 so I think part of it too is just better swing decisions. And the other component to this in terms of Verdugo, I mentioned Yoshida. Duran's been really good. Duvall was good, obviously, prior to the injury. Mm -hmm. So you look at this number, the numbers for the outfield, they're hitting 317 as a group, which is first. Last year, they were 12th. And by the way, they're so far in front of the team that's in second, the Cubs at 286 in average. They're first and on base percentage at 391. They're first Mm -hmm. in slugging at uh, 554. 937 OPS, which is first. So they're first in all these statistical categories in terms of their outfield offensively. And you mentioned Duran off the top here. I got to tell you, I did not. I was really concerned. I didn't know if he was a major league player based Mm -hmm. on what we saw last year, not just defensively, but offensively as well. And look, I get it. It's a small sample size, but he's at 396. That was at 221 last year. The on-base percentage is at 414. That was at 283. 
The slug has gone from 363 to 679. He's got the two bombs. He only had three all of last season. And I know he made some changes in terms of his hand placement. And he does hold the bat weird, too. I, I don't know if I've ever oh, seen it. It's almost like he like interlocks it. It's, it's really bizarre. But, yeah. hey, whatever works for the guy. Now, look, there's still a lot of swing and miss in terms of the strikeout rate. But he's making much better contact in terms of the hard hit rate is 52.5%. That That's balls off the bat, 95+. plus. I think Alex, I think Alex Spear tweeted out, like, his hard hit rate is up there with, like, Matt Chapman. Like, yeah, that's where you know he's at. I mean? like, it's, 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 it's like it's like mirrors Matt Chapman. And I know Duran is a big guy, but like if you see Matt Chapman in person, like you're talking about a guy that hits 36 nukes a year. Like it's like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's it's not it, it, it like like and I cover Matt Chapman like when he he'll hit like 220, 225, 230. But oh, my gosh, when he when he connects with the ball, like he's such a big guy. It's just like it, it, it just goes. It's like Stanton like, you know, what I mean? in, in some sense. Um, to a lesser degree, but like in some sense, you're like, whoa, like what the heck is that? Like, how do you, like, yeah. you know, that the batted ball on that just seems crazy. Like, so Duran's up there right now. Um, the interesting thing with Duran, I want to see though, is like, okay, you're hot right now, you're going well. I want to see him struggle, and I want to see him get through those struggles and get back to being not this because this is this is hot. Like this yeah. is this is the hot hand right now. <laughs> I want to see him here, right, and yeah. see to see if he can get to like. Not necessarily here again, but I want to see if he can get from like being shitty to being solid across the board and consistent. To getting it back, you yeah. know what I mean. And I think that's where we're gonna—that's where we're gonna get a really real sense of like saying, okay, like the switch has turned, right? And I think that's what you sort of sort of look at at big leaguers because I remember I was talking to Verdugo. I was like, dude, I think you got a batting title in you. He's like, dude, I've been doing this for two weeks. Like anybody can do this shit for two weeks. <laughs> like he, did, he, literally, he literally told me that he's like it takes it's it's across 162 game season, so so like with Duran, I really want to I, I I really want to see him and I like Duran, I like him a lot, I, I like him a lot as a, as a person as a player, and I think he's if he can be like uh, 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 this for this team, and what I mean by this is like consistent. You have a guy that's a potential all star and a guy that's a, as a potential you know impact player, um, but like I want to see him do it for. For a cons- I want to see him fail a little bit more to see how he responds to that. Because remember when he came up last year in June, um, when Jackie Bradley went on, on, I think he went on paternity leave in Oakland, he was going off. He went, yep. took a, he went, then we went to Cleveland from there. He was still going off. And then he hit that little you know skid, and that's where everything just started to unravel for him. So I think he has the right mindset now. I think the veterans, I think Kike Hernandez reached out to him in the offseason, called him. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, basically was like, you know, offered his mentorship to him. Um, I think that really, really helped in, in terms of just getting him to a spot where he feels comfortable enough to ask people for things in the clubhouse, because last year, I don't think he was necessarily, and, and I'm not buying the whole logic of, of last year was a bad clubhouse. I, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't think it, I don't, I don't think it was. I'd never well, you would know, right? Way. I mean, you were there every day. Yeah, you would I, know. I, I'm like, it, it was, it was a good club. It was, it was a very, very good clubhouse. However, you still have guys that were, you know, have their little like clicks and crews and stuff like that. And 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 this year, you're going into like you have a whole bunch of new guys. You sort of have to rebrand the clubhouse in some way, right? And 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 I think this dynamic for Duran works a little bit better because you have because he's because one, he's a little bit older. And two, um, he has he has teammates around him that that seem to resonate with him a little bit more in terms of just, you know, how we should be go about every day being a big leaguer. 
Yeah. So for him, I think that it's a great point to see what happens after he struggles. Does he come out of it? Because obviously last year he just it, it got really bad after that. He had yeah. and then he had issues with the media in terms of losing it in the twilight. So it does feel like he's past that. And I hope he's past that. But yeah. this right now, obviously, you can't expect him to be like a 400 hitter the rest of the season. No, but it no, is good no. to see. It is good he's to all- see that the the adjustment worked, right? Like whatever yeah. he did in the offseason with the adjustment, it works. That's a positive. He would be my biggest surprise on the team. But I would give an honorable mention to Josh Winkowski because mm-hmm. Josh Winkowski last year could not miss a bat. And it's not like he's a big strikeout guy now. <laughs> but if you had told me, Julian, prior to the season, you know who's actually going to be like their most important reliever this season? Josh Winkowski. I would have told you, listen, you're fucking crazy. Like th- the guy yeah. that can't strike anybody out is going to be their most valuable reliever. And you look at it now, he's first in all the Major League Baseball in innings out of the bullpen. Obviously, he can be that long guy because of his pedigree as a starter. The whip Mm -hmm. is 0.94. The ERA is 161. And it's not as important as a reliever, but guys are hitting under 200 against them. Numbers are really good against righties and they're pretty good against lefties as well. All the stuff is up. Velocity's up on the sinker where he gets a ton of ground balls. That's what I loved about him when he first came up. And then you think about the slider, that all all the stuff's up across the board. The walk rate is way down. It's at 5.7, which is in the 52nd percentile. Last year was at 8.5. That was in the 76th percentile. So he's gone from a guy that was walking the ballpark left and right to a guy, not left and right, but it felt like last mm-hmm. year he wasn't confident in his stuff to right to yeah. throw it in the zone. And this year it's totally different where, and maybe part of it's because he got off to a good start where he is attacking the strike zone. This So it's not just the fact that he's been good. It's the fact that in the role that he's in, I just never expected it. And now all of a sudden, you look at Benintendi, he's down the bottom of the league in hard hit rate, 172nd out of 179 qualifiers. The OPS is 657. And you're starting to think about it like, hey, maybe we're going to revisit this Benintendi thing in a couple of years. Yeah. Like, maybe this actually works out. And I don't know. Do you think this is his role going forward is this weapon out of the, not I for this year it's obviously his role but do you think this is what he is long term is this weapon out of the bullpen rather than a starter I think so I think I think he has a like the stuff to be a starter I think like you know just seeing him you know it, it's it's kind of like the you we'll probably get to like the, the the to a lesser degree like the Tanner Houck effect right where it's like if like the more they see you like for consistent in consistent amount of time you have to turn over a lineup I think the stuff sort of goes down a little bit um but I, I, I do think it's it's interesting as 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 a long guy, you know, because I think Cutter Crawford. We make all this this stuff about who's going to start, who's going to start, who's is Tanner how can go to the bullpen, is Paxton go to the bullpen. We can make it a case that Cutter Crawford should go back to the rotation, right? So I, like, I'm totally think, with you. I agree. Like, I, I would right? do it in like, a second. He he's been he's legitimately been one of the best pitchers in baseball. Absolutely. I mean, and if you look at like the he throws the truest four seam fastball. I think in all, I think Alex Beer wrote that in all of baseball, like where it's like the the spin of it is like the truest spin of any pitcher there is. And he and with that, like it's like it's not like a Nick Pavetta thing where it's like, oh, his fastball has ride and spin, but like yeah, but it still gets hit. Like it doesn't get hit. That's the yeah. thing, right? Like the, the 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 analytics back the eye test and back the production. So, but with the Winkowski thing, I think we have a guy that sort of can be that long guy. You know, I think I think they probably will at some point revisit him as a starter. Um, not this year, obviously, but going forward, you know, I think that he does have some ability to start, but I think he sort of found a role here, and I think he's embraced that role, even though he did want to start. Obviously, he everybody wants to start, but 
you know, as you get into the league and, and you want to stay around and not be optioned like he was last year, you know, you get like, okay, like I can sort of assume this role and sort of figure out if I'm a starter or not a little bit later. Look at Matt Strom. I mean, look, he's starting Philly and he's 30, what, 31 years old or something like that. So yeah, if the start, the starting thing could come back around, but I definitely see him as a weapon out of the bullpen, at least for the rest of this year and probably possibly into next year too. Yeah, that Strom thing is so weird that all of a sudden he's a starter and he's at, and he's actually been good. Yeah, I, I laughed when I when I read like like Ken Rosenthal's thing last year saying he wanted to be a starter. I was like, Matt Strom, starter? But good for him. <laughs> yeah, and to your point about Crawford is he's fourth in whip out of the bullpen. He's fourth in hard hit rate. So guys, they don't mm-hmm. get they don't make good contact. He's another guy like Winkowski just peppers the strike zone. So that is the guy that I would love to see him go back in the rotation. I I know that they like using him as that weapon because it's a, yeah. it's obviously a very important role, but I feel like now you have sort of Winkowski for that situation. And I love the fact that Cora went to Winkowski in the ninth when he wasn't going to pitch him because he's been throwing so many innings. Now he's going to get a couple of days off, but he's like, hey, we need to get this win. You're one of our mm-hmm. best relievers. We're not just going to use you in this multiple inning role. Come on here and get the save. And he ended up doing that against Toronto. As, as it yeah. pertains to Houck, Look, I was all in and giving him a chance to see what he was as a starter, but you look at it now, he gave up that home run on Tuesday to the lefty Varsho, a bad splitter, so all of a sudden it's a 6-3 game in favor of Toronto. Now, give the Red Sox credit this lineup. They have balls, they come back, they win the game. It was an awesome ending to the game. But you look at the numbers, like the first time through the order, it's really good. Then the second time through, they're hitting 366, or 362, 893 OPS. Third time through, it's only 29 plate appearances. 10.37 10.37 OPS, three home runs. The numbers against lefties aren't good either. 2.77, 8.70 OPS. So I don't know. Call me crazy. I just look at the fact that he's really dominant the first time through. I feel yeah. like if you look at the two guys, you compare Crawford to Tanner Houck. I feel like Crawford has more in terms of his ability to get guys out for an extended period of time than Tanner Houck does. I'd rather have Houck. And look, he's gotten an opportunity here. And he hasn't proven Absolutely. that he should stay in the rotation. So, and I like Houck. Like his stuff's really nasty. I just, I feel like he profiles more of a reliever. And I do think at times it's time, it's tough for him to harness it, right? Like there's so much yeah. movement on his so pitches much. that it, it, and doesn't it come undone so quickly? Like it was all of a yeah. sudden in that, it, what was it? The fifth inning that they got this, the six runs up or the six, whatever it was, they got the, yeah. no, because Cora sent them back out after that inning, but which I thought was a nice move by Cora to like, so yeah. he could stay confident, so to speak. But it, I'm just the Tanner Houck starter experience. I think I'm done with it. It's funny. One of my buddies texted me and was like, uh, like when he went into the to that sixth inning, and he was like, they were like, you see, like everybody's like, everybody's saying like Tanner's not a starter. You see, like I like told you he's a starter, and then bang, the sixth inning happened. He's like, damn, spoke too soon. <laughs> like you know, so like, I like yes, like I think there's. You, you see him labor, too, right? It's like he's not a thinking guy. And I say that with, like, I don't mean that to demean him or anything. I think it works for who he is. He thinks, like, like if he, he can give up 10 runs, like, I guarantee you he did not lose an ounce of sleep last night, right? And I think that sort of, that sort of like, falls in line for me a little bit more of being a reliever. You see him, you see him like, sort of become a little bit more passive, in the starters role, because especially as the, as the innings go along, because he's like, okay, now I have to turn over lineup. Okay, now I have to throw this in this count. Okay, now I have to be methodical and try to spot up here. He's not a spot up guy, right? Like location will never be, he'll never be able to locate the way a Chris Sale located in Chris Sale's prime. Like it's just not there. Like it's not, 
that's not the top type of type of pitcher he's like and you talk about the the, the first time through the order uh, innings one through three he has a one era innings three any, any innings four through six 10.38 era so like <laughs> and this isn't this isn't something that's 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 this has been throughout his this has been a question mark even when him coming up right yeah, we it's like, not new can he turn over a lineup you know what i mean and i think you're looking at a guy that's he's clearly tried to to to, to remain a starter. He's 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 implemented the splitter, implemented the cutter this year now, and at some point you got to look back and say like, okay, like, I know you're giving us innings, you know, I know you give us five six innings. Yes, you went out there last last day when they needed that six inning, you got that six inning. But at some point the offense is going to go cold, right? And that's the, my, the question mark that I have about the the pitching staff as a whole, or, or at least the, the rotation. I think it's like six one three. Three ERA, like the dead la- second to last in the majors. Like, yeah, it's really last though point, because Oakland's last, so it's really last. Right. Yeah. So like, yeah. So like last in the majors. So like, yeah. There's 29 teams. Yeah, they're last. So like, yeah. So like, there, there's there's that question mark for me in terms of like, look, the offense is going to be able to bail you guys out every time. So like, what are we going to do here? And I think just just looking at that from that from that perspective, it's like him. Or the guy pitching, you know, Wednesday night tonight, Pavetta, you know, those are guys that possibly should possibly be relievers. I mean, I looked at Pavetta even in the in the in the um, when they played Tampa in the in the playoffs a couple of years ago. I mean, he was a lead for them out the bullpen, and I think his yep. stuff might play a little bit better out the bullpen. So, I mean, they have a lot of they have a lot of weapons um, that they could use in other spots, but they also with that there comes a lot of question marks of like, okay, is this guy actually a starter? So. Um, the Hulk thing, I think, I think the experiment has has sort of seen enough, at least for this year. And he's the course said he's going to start Sunday, but he did he wouldn't he wouldn't go beyond that because you know obviously you have Paxton coming back at some point. Yeah, and let's see what Paxton has when he comes back because that guy hasn't pitched in a long time. But you mentioned the rotation, the ERA. They're twenty eighth in WAR, the starting rotation. They're tied for the fifth most losses. Average is twenty fifth. Home runs, they've given up the second most at 32. The hard hit rate is 26. And you start to put all this together and you think about what if the rotation was actually just like mediocre? If they were 15th in baseball, like in most statistical categories, what this team's record would be? Because how many times already have we seen them come from behind? And you start to go through it. I thought Bayo threw the ball well against Cleveland. He did give up that home run. But other than that, I thought he pitched pretty well. And now he's back up. Sale was better last time out. Six and a third, one earn. Now, not a lot of swing and miss stuff with Sale, which is interesting to me. And his, I know it's been it's a storyline. It's, it's, ver- it's, it's, it's the break. It's the yeah, break on, on the slider. slider. Yeah, it's, it's way slider. down. It's like in his prime, it's over 14 inches. This year, it's over, it's, it's around 11. In his last outing, it was even less than that. It was around and, and, nine. And you can so tell, that, you, you, can, you can see him like fucking pissed off that he can't get the slider to where he wants it to be. You know what I mean? Like He always goes like this with his fingers. Like he can't. He wants it to get to a certain point, and it's just like a groove ball into, you know, the bat of Wander Franco, you know, and yeah, <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, it's it's a slider, man. It's it's definitely it's a slider. It's not, and, and it's his location too. I think I think he's not spotting the way where you see he's not he's not around the plate with his fastball the way the way it usually is. But you know, I, the, the 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 no swing and miss thing is bizarre because, um, in in some in some which which shows you how much he did depend on that slider for it to be like his 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 wipeout pitch because it just played up his fastball so much more um but like even the baltimore thing like no swings and like one swing and miss the entire night right like insane 96 like it's like what like i i 
I can see why Cora was like, was he tipping? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and it's it's so it, it, but it's again, it's been like that with him, especially with the Baltimore dating back to spring. Like me and um another and Ian Brown were the only guys to go to the game in Sarasota when they played Baltimore, and it was the same exact thing. And he's like, and he was like ninety six, ninety seven. It was like his hardest. It was like his hardest. Um, hardest. Like he's throwing the hardest he was that that entire spring in that game. And they were just hitting freaking rockets after rockets after rockets after rockets. And you're just like, what the heck is going on? And he's like, I just got to tip my cap to him. And he said that two other times, like, like after that, I just got to tip my cap to him. So I don't know. Like, I, I just, I just think it's, it's the slider and the, and the, and the lack of location. Cora mentioned something, said something interesting. He said, like, we got to get him back to being an athlete on the mound because if you see yeah. him, like, like in sort of, and sort of like you see, like Saley, like the, the things that makes his stuff so elite too is that it's very deceptive. And like it's you see long arms and limbs, similar to Hulk, where it's like all the stuff's coming at you, and then it's like boom, ninety-seven, right? So right now he's just very, very, very like tight, and and and, and the flexibility in some in some regards isn't there. So we'll see if that if that changes. Obviously, last the last outing was promising, but the swing and miss, like again, like you said, that's a little bit of a concern. Yeah, and I think if he's not going to get that slider back to where it was in terms of the break, then the command's got to be really good because that's obviously an issue he's had this season. And it was better last time out, so hopefully he builds off that. I'm glad he doesn't have to face this Blue Jays lineup that has like a million good righties and he gets to wait until Philadelphia. But if his command is good, well, then he can be like a viable pitcher. Just It's weird, like Chris Siltz now looks like a pitcher that's going to have to pitch to contact more, which has never been in his DNA. I don't know if if he can do that. Yeah, I don't know either because his his command has always been, his stuff is so good that he can miss his spot and it doesn't matter, right? It's kind of like Otani. Otani can miss his spot, it doesn't matter because the stuff's so nasty. That's what Sale was for so long. That's so what, I'm interested that, like, to see what he is, what he's got on Friday. But yeah. Oh, the other guy I wanted to ask you about is Whitlock because obviously he's coming back. I guess they got good news, which is great that he's not going to be out for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. But la- that last outing he had, he threw 52 seamers. I was like, what is going on? I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if you throw a hundred. You can't throw that many yeah. fastballs. He he didn't have the confidence in his slider at all either. I mean, he used to be like a ground ball machine. He hasn't been that over the past two years. And these injuries continue to pile up with him. And I'm wondering too, like, is this a guy that's in like, we've had these conversations multiple, multiple times. Is he better suited for the bullpen? Considering the fact yeah. that Tommy John, before he came to the Sox, of course, the hip thing last year and now he's dealing with this elbow thing like I'm just concerned if he's going to make it this season through the year as a starter he's already been on the IL once right right now he's dealing with the injury and then he didn't start the season because he was coming off the surgery I'm just wondering about is based I'm not even like it's not even so much about the stuff although the changeup and the fastball the difference the gap has never been smaller than it is this year like Mm -hmm. he's throwing his changeup harder and his fastball softer which is the the worst combination that you can come up with but I'm just I'm more concerned about the health as as a start if he's actually going to make it. Yeah, I, I I'm concerned about that too because you remember like it was like three or four starts into his um into when when Tanner Tanner didn't get the vaccine and that's when Whitlock had to take over in the rotation when they went to went to the Blue Jays at the end of May I believe then by June like seventh he was on the IL with that hip thing right and then he came back and he just wasn't necessarily this he wasn't ever the same i have the same questions too in fact i asked Corey about him like hey like does this diminish you guys thinking of him as of thinking of him moving forward as a starter by him just having these injuries that have come up as a starter he's like well you know you can 
get hurt as a reliever too and you pitch every other day and it's like yeah but it's not the same thing it's not the same workload in some sense right it's just not it's just not the same so and i think cora knows that but like yeah the injuries um we still don't know what he is right we know he's a great reliever we know he can we know he can we know he can do go multiple innings we know he can close we know he can be a setup man we know he can come in like again like in a sixth inning and, and cover two three innings we don't know if he's a star in the big leagues yet, right? And even dating, like you said, dating back to Tommy John in the minors, like you know, it's there's a like he had Tommy John as a starter in the in the Yankees system, right? Like there's we like yes, they did get a guy that has value, and I think the Yankees missed in some sense. But when considering that they were looking at him as a starter, it's like okay, maybe this isn't our guy. And granted, the Red Sox got a steal in that. I I, I wholeheartedly believe that. I wholeheartedly believe no he's doubt, a yeah. Believer. However, I think that what comes with that is like, don't try to necessarily reinvent the wheel, right? And so this is where I get to with like sort of this rotation, right? Is like, I always go back to the A's because I think they have a necessarily, fa- I cover them and they have a fascinating way of doing things. But in 2018, like I, their rotation was like dog shit, right? It was like Brett Anderson, fucking Sean Manaya, like all these guys, like I think Edwin Jackson was like their best starter that year. And he was like, it was like sort of like, like a, like a, his 19th uh, team. Yeah. And Edwin's my guy. I love Edwin. That was my favorite guy in the league. He's the fucking best guy ever. So, um, they, what Billy Bean did, I think was, was really, really now, as I look back on, I was like, well, why didn't go out and get rotation guys? Right. Like he went out and was like, fuck it. Like I have Lou Trevino, Blake Trinan, um, and Liam Hendricks, in our bullpen, and I'm going to go out and just give us the fucking most dominant bullpen there is and ask these guys to cover like four or five innings. Now, is that sustainable? No. But with a, but is that sustainable with winning you a championship? Possibly and probably not. But is this a sustainable for getting you to the playoffs to get a chance to go to, to win a championship? Yes, it is. I don't think the, 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 this rotation – and say, oh, we're, we're just one or two guys away from being an elite rotation. Like, that's, that's a lot to depend on, you know, especially yeah. at this time of the year. But what you can depend on is that, okay, I can have a potential of Tanner Houck in a bullpen, Nick Pavette in the bullpen, Chris Martin in the bullpen, uh, Kenley Jansen in the bullpen, Cutter Crawford or Josh Winkowski in the bullpen, whatever. Like, now you start to see things a little bit differently. So, okay, if I add right. one or two more guys to this and I just say, hey, Corey Kluber or – uh, um, you know, Nick Pavetta, who, whomever, uh, you know, Chris Sale, get me to the fourth or fifth inning. And then we have the best bullpen in baseball because Oakland had the best one, I think the best bullpen in baseball that year. And I have, I have a lineup that bangs. And I think Oakland had like, we're ranked like third in homers. We're like one of the be- better offenses in baseball, similar to the Red Sox with guys that you didn't necessarily expect to be doing it at the time. But we have a lineup that's going to score a lot of runs, get us to the fourth or fifth inning, and then we got it from there. And I think that's necessarily not – I, I do think you need starters. But in the reality of the situation that the Red Sox are in right now, this is their reality. Like you, you can't ask Corey Kluber and Chris Sale to cover right. six, seven innings, you know, every start. That's too much for them in this point in their career. Like you can't even ask – that's just that's just unfair. So you're going to have to figure out the way to stockpile the things and just make your bullpen as elite as it possibly can – and I think that will that will go better with, you know, this lineup for them to be able to cover that amount of cover those amount of innings, 
and then and for this line to be able to score the runs that they'll be able to score because you can't they're not gonna be able to come back from six three down every night they're just not yeah it's a great point too like hey your strength is the bullpen so this is where you're at you're not magically gonna have all these great starters join the team in like the next couple of weeks so it makes perfect and it's great that they have these long guys too where they can sort of get by without their starters giving them what a normal playoff team would get. All right, that is Julian McWilliams from the Globe. Julian, before I let you go, I just wanted to mention our guy, Tristan Cassis, 128, 185th out of 185 players with at least 90 plate appearances. He's still walking. But man, I hope this turns around for him quickly. And the alarming thing is he's hitting 103 against righties. Hopefully yeah. it just turns... Look, and we've seen a lot of young guys struggle when they come up. So like, I'm not selling any of my stock on Casas, but he's got to get going, man. We got to see a he's home run from get him. Going. He's got to he's got to get going, man. And I think it's it's he has to start going opposite field again. He's pulling off on everything. He's getting into deep counts. Like he's really, really like he's getting into deep counts and losing the, losing the at bats. He's getting behind. I think we, me and you talked about it. Like he's sort of not aggressive in those in the, on those advantageous accounts. And like he's a thinking guy. Right. He's a guy that talks the game and eats, breathes and sleeps the game a lot. And I asked him the other day, I'm like, do you is there too much of that with you right now? Like, is it just too much? Are you doing too much of that? He's like, no, like this is this is what I do. And he's like, the good thing about Casas is that I don't think he'll have these sort of doubts that Duran had. Right. He's Mm. just wired differently mentally. And and certain guys need. And this isn't a knock on Duran. Um, certain guys need certain things, right? And I think um, Casas is a little bit more sure of himself in that sense, you know, from the sunbathing to whatever. Like, he's just kind of a the nails. He's a different guy, right? And I think he's comfortable in being himself. And I think this is what's getting him through this time. Like, I think even in his struggles – like it's the same it's just, it's the same sort of demeanor that he had even in the spring when he was doing well and you were labeling him the next you know freaking you know Ted Williams over here like me giving him all-star nods and all this stuff um yeah yeah that I don't think that's going to happen but again like Pedroia struggled in his first you know oh yeah and Core is equi- Core is equipped to handle this i mean he was with, yeah. he was with Pedroia when that was going on yeah. he was part of that 07 yeah. team so yeah, maybe so, get a hobby. Maybe you should play like video games, binge like I Succession, dude, Yellow I Jackets. I was, like, I was like, "Do you do anything else?" He was like, "No." I was like, "Dude, you like you got to get something, man. Like go out to a club or something. Like, geez, like it's you know what I mean? Like you're you're making you're making high six figures living in Boston as a 23 year old and you're single. What are you doing? Like, yeah, like, I mean, come on. Look at James Harden. The guy goes to Vegas and then he Vegas lights up the Celtics. Yeah, I mean, come on, find something. Get him going. That is Julian McWilliams from The Globe. Julian, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Awesome, Brian. Appreciate it, man. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was... A kid's session with exercise, 
gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Julian and McWilliams. How about the Sox, man? Five in a row. Let's go. I feel good about the Red Sox right now. Now, the rotation, as we were talking about at the end there, definitely a concern with this team going forward, but the bullpen's been really good in the lineup. They are just hitting the shit out of the ball, and I love the fact that they're beating up on the Blue Jays because last year, that was really, 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 did I say really painful? Okay. We do have time for a call, so let's do that. 617-396-7172. The number is 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? This is Clayton down in Virginia. Hey, I just want to say, after all this Bruins talk, I'm a big New England sports guy, but I'm also a big UVA sports fan. And I have to say, the only time besides this Bruin loss that I've felt this bad is when UVA as a one seed blew it to UMBC. I think that's the biggest swing I can remember of emotion of confidence to can't believe they lost. Anyway, just wanted to add to that conversation. Love the pod. Thanks. Bye. All right. Appreciate the call. Now, Virginia does have a propensity to get upset in the tournament. They lost this year to Furman when they were relatively high seed. I believe they were four seed this year. So this happens a lot with Virginia. Now, Virginia, after they lost to UMBC, they did bounce back the next year, won the national championship, and they beat Texas Tech. So if that's the fate for the Bruins, I'm all in. I'd be very happy, but I just don't see that happening with this Bruins team, especially considering some of the stuff that we chatted about with my buddy Scott McLaughlin the other day, the salary cap concerns, Krejci and Bergeron, will they be back? Like This felt like the last opportunity for the Bruins to win a cup. And you didn't really feel that way about that Virginia team, not to go into great detail about that Virginia team that won the national championship with the DeAndre Hunters of the world, et cetera. But my overwhelming point with this is just the Bruins loss is worse because like college, like that's a historic loss, historic loss in terms of Virginia losing to UMBC. But there's a really good chance, even though they're the number one seed in the tournament, that they don't win the national championship. The Bruins, it felt like, And it's not like Virginia was going to be considered the greatest team in the history of college basketball. The Bruins had the opportunity, based on what they did during the regular season, to at least have a seat at the table as the best team ever. So that's why it's just so deflating with the Bruins. Like Tony Bennett and Virginia, yeah, they have bad tournament losses, but they're going to continue to be really good. It's just a really good program. And this Bruins thing, it sort of felt like the end for them. All right. Man, we were having a good pod in terms of the positivity, the Celtics, the Red Sox, and then we got to talk about the Bruins. I don't want to think about that loss anymore for at least a couple of weeks. I can't do it. I'm having difficulty even watching the Stanley Cup playoffs now because I just keep thinking about the Bruins. And Florida, hey, good for them. They beat Toronto in the first game after those Toronto fans, soft Toronto fans, started chanting, we want Florida after the series was tied at three, the Bruins and Panthers, that is. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in that number 617 You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com as well. And we will be back with you on Friday after Game 3 Celtics and 76ers in Philly. That place is going to be going nuts. Embiid, the MVP, so that'll be entertaining. Hopefully, we'll be talking to you Friday after a Celtics win. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys in a couple of days. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.